0: Good afternoon. Thank you, Nishant, for uh, that very long scripture reading. Um, one of the reasons why I had Nishant read that is because it is indeed a long passage, and uh, thought I would save some time um, if Nishant read it in a sonorous voice. Um, we started a series on judges last week, uh, or two weeks before, and last week, Viji, our brother Vijay, looked at Othniel, and this week we're going to continue by looking at Jephthah. Jephthah is one of the more famous judges, um, and the reason why he's famous is because of the incident we read at the end of his life regarding the vow that he made and his daughter. So he's a challenging character in this book uh, because of his background, you know, his beliefs, and the tra- and the tragedy that befell his family. And one of the other reasons why. It is challenging, is because in, if you go to Hebrews chapter eleven, uh, of all the judges who are mentioned there, uh, you would think that oh the good judges, as we would call them, uh, you know, Othniel and Ehud and Deborah, would be mentioned there, but they are not. Instead, those who are mentioned are Samson and and Jephthah and Gilead and Barak and so on. So um, there's a whole sermon that can be preached on why. Hebrews chapter 11 is not a hall of heroes. We call it the hall of faith, but it's not a hall of heroes. It's not even a hall of people who had strong faith. But it's a hall of the faithfulness of God as expressed in the, in the, in the life of his people. But we won't dwell on that today because if you read um, the account of Jephthah and Judges, what we see is a very negative outlook on this man and on his life. So we have to be careful when we study the book of Judges not to bring back you know, all of our knowledge from you know, other books and, uh, in the New Testament to color what the writer of Judges is saying. And it's important that we understand what the writer of Judges is saying about the life of Jephthah so that we can gain the, the benefit of, of, the, uh, of the conclusion that he comes to and apply that in our lives and ask questions that are relevant to our lives. And as Vijay was saying last week, the overall theme of Judges is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Right? It's a description of the behavior of God's people in the new world that they found themselves in. There were people who were enslaved in Egypt. God, by his great hand, brought them out through the leadership of Moses and, uh, and uh, Joshua, and then gave them this land of Canaan. The book of Judges, if you read in chapter 1 and 2, begins with a description of how each tribe undertook their mission to complete the conquest of Canaan, that is, in essence, to rid their land of the influence of the Canaanites. And their failure to complete the conquest is mentioned, in Judges chapter 1 and 2. And their failure to complete the conquest has implications. It has ramifications. Because what Judges tells us is that by tolerating the presence of Canaan in their midst, they would soon not just tolerate Canaan, but they would celebrate Canaan. And they would follow the patterns of Canaan. And they would forsake the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, to worship the many false gods of Canaan. So when you read Judges, you will notice that, one, it is an account of the individual tribes, but also that as Judges progresses, there is a degeneration or a degradation in the faith and the holiness of Israel. So that by the time you come to Samson and after Samson, it's almost as if the people of God are indistinguishable, from the people around them. And this degeneration, this degradation is captured in what we call the cycle of Judges, which is that the people of God fall away from faith to worship false gods. They are soon oppressed by the people who they were supposed and who God had promised that they would conquer. They cry out to God for deliverance. And then God, in his faithful covenant-keeping character, even though his people are faithless, has pity on them and raises up a judge or a deliverer who rescues them from their oppressors. But the people soon forget and go back to their fallen ways. And in a sense, that cycle becomes worse and worse over time until there is no more visible presence of God in the land and his people have become as evil and corrupt as the world around them. And the writer of Judges highlights two reasons why the children of Israel fell away and this cycle happened in their history. The first one is their failure to remember God's past, present goodness and his future promises to the nation of Israel. So their failure to remember who God is, what God had done for them and what God, God had promised to do for them. And secondly, their attraction to the culture, to the patterns and pleasures of the world around them. So this morning we we're remembering that having our portion in God means that we find our pleasure and our enjoyment in God himself. But here the people were attracted to the patterns and pleasures of the world around them whereby they no longer found that pleasure in God himself. And hence these two causes, were the, these two reasons were the cause why they fell away so often. And I would call this pattern in a slightly different way. See, it never, it's never said in the book of Judges that the people of Israel are no longer the people of God. Right? So in essence, there's some element of faith in the people of Israel until the very end of Judges. However, at the same time, they also fell into the cycle. And what I would call that is pragmatic faith. And, and, the, and the reason why it is pragmatic Uh, If if you define pragmatism, which is actually a very modern word to define an ancient concept, this is how it's defined. It's an approach that assesses the truth of of beliefs in terms of success of their practical application or in terms of success of their immediate practical application. What pragmatism is, is that I will choose to believe what benefits me immediately. And in their failure to remember God and in their attraction to the world, you could say that the Israelites were being pragmatic in how they would handle their relationship with God. So for example, they always chose their immediate needs over future promises. They always chose instant pleasure over eternal joy. They always chose what they thought was the stability and security of being mixed in with the world around them over the conflict and the uncertainty that comes from being a people separated to God. Thereby, that's how they mixed the beliefs of the world with the true faith of God. And that's sometimes called in the book of Judges, you know, some, some people call that as a canonization of Israel, in that they were still Israel, but somehow their religion, their faith had become canonized. They had become what we call worldly, but what it really is, if you ask uh, ourselves honestly, it is their intention to to make the best of the moment that they found themselves in, forgetting what God had promised them. And in itself, the word pragmatic does not go with faith because they're kind of oxymorons. Because in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So there's no real way in which faith is pragmatic. See, faith is always risky. It's always, it's always um, uncertain. That's why it's faith. But in choosing to have the best of both worlds, what we find the, is that Israel had neither. and And that is how a lot of us today try to live our lives. We have brought in to the lie of this world that because the future is uncertain, it is better to live for the now. Thereby, we have a tension trying to serve two masters, trying to live like the world and at the same time live for God, trying to reconcile the thoughts and influence and the the diktats of the world with the teaching of the word of God, and thereby we try to serve both the world and God. And if there's an overwhelming lesson in Judges, It is that God does not allow his mastery over his people to be subjugated or shared with anything else. And the story of Judges is the consequence of such a kind of faith writ large in the lives of God's people. And in the case of Jephthah, that failure of pragmatic faith leads to an unspeakable tragedy. And we look at the story of Jephthah in chapter 11 We can briefly summarize the account of Jephthah himself by looking at his background, by looking at the talents that he had, which enabled him for the leadership role that he was put in, and then the tragedy of Jephthah. These are the three sections in chapter 11. But all the time, while we look at Jephthah, the author of Judges wants us to ask the following questions. What does this tell us about the beliefs of the people of God at that time and the impact of this canonization of this pragmatic faith and what does it tell us about how they viewed God? See one of the things you would notice which is unique uh, let's say to Jephthah as opposed to when we read Othniel is that there's not much mention of God and we have to ask ourselves why is that and that's a question that we will try to answer as we go through uh, this passage the actual background of Jephthah begins in chapter 10. Uh, our brother read it from verse 6 onwards. And we see the cycle begins, right? The people did evil. They worshipped Baals and Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria and the Ammonites. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And that's interesting, Right? It says that the people served the gods of the Ammonites, and in his anger, God sold them to the Ammonites. And that's the like that's a pattern repeated through Judges that idolatry leads to slavery. We could say also that God enforces the logical oppressive consequence of the desires of the hearts of His people, and that is not unique to Judges. When we go to Romans. You know, this famous passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 25 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He sold them in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, what we find our pleasure and security in becomes our idols. And the Bible consistently says that whatever is your idol will enslave you. Whatever is your allegiance leads to your enslavement. For the people of God, the consequence of idolatry is physical enslavement in the time of judges. But for us today and in Romans, it is the enslavement of our emotions and our desires and our joys and our satisfaction to the temporal and fleeting trends and and devices of the world, whether that's money or sex or entertainment. Enslavement, in a sense, of our hearts to something that cannot satisfy us, which is why We are not satisfied by having any amount of money. We want more or any amount of entertainment, right? I was reading that the founder of Netflix said, we have no competition other than sleep, which is true. That is enslavement because the more you consume, the more you want of it. And in Judges, we see the people of God are oppressed. And then we see in chapter 10, the second part of the cycle, when the people cry out to God, once again in their enslavement. And what's interesting is the first time they said, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. That's what they cried out. And in this initial exchange, you can see how they're still trying to have the best of both worlds. They want deliverance from the present condition. But there's no mention of what they actually did. All they say is they forsake, the God, they forsake God and they served Baals. And that's why the, the reply from the Lord is so sarcastic. He's calling out a hypocrisy of a people who sought pleasures uh, in others and came back to him only when that pleasure led to pain. He's saying that, why did not you go ask the gods, the idols that wh- you have served, instead of me, who deserved your worship, and it was instead forgotten. So as we read chapter 10, you see the second time, uh, the people of Israel then come back and say, we have sinned do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So the second time, they recognized that their treatment of God deserves justice. That that it's not enough, somehow that they came back crawling when their slavery consumed them, but rather that they deserved to be judged And yet, at the same time, they also said, do what you will, but please deliver us. And we see that God, in his faithfulness, is once again inclining his heart towards rescuing them. They cast away their idols, and God is ready to act once again in accordance with his promises. And then you go to the end of chapter 10, we see that the Ammonites, who have enslaved them, have come to battle, at this place called Mizpah, which is in Gilead. So the, the battle now seems to be between the Ammonites and Gilead. Now the problem for Gilead is that they don't have a leader. And ominously, this time the book of Judges does not say that God raised up a deliverer, which is usually, well, if you read the previous Judges, that's what it says in the case of Othniel in the case of Ehud and so on, it says God raised up a deliverer. This time it does not say that. It says that God was impatient and the people of uh, God camped at this place for Mizpah ready to do battle with the Ammonites without a leader. And that's how we come to Jephthah. Now, Jephthah's story begins in chapter 11. And in verses 1 to 3, we see that he was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And, and his father was also called Gilead, same as the tribe, and Gilead's wife had sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they threw Jephthah out of the house, saying, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his house, and he lived in this land called Tob, and what the Bible called worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So, so we come to this Gileadite, who is a mighty warrior, that means he's skilled in the art of battle, but he's not exactly leadership material, right? He's an outcast living in this land which is not within his home, uh, homeland. And, he, and though he's a warrior, he's actually a criminal who engaged in some sort of banditry, right? Like even though it doesn't say crime, that's what it means. He's a crime boss, right? Like a mafia leader in this land of Tob. And if you look at Jephthah's life, you'll see multiple examples of how Canaanized the children of Israel were. First off, he's the son of a prostitute. That's a violation of God's law against sexual immorality, of the injunction against Israelites becoming prostitutes, that is, if his mother was an Israelite, or if his mother was a Canaanite, which it does not say, one way or the other, of Israelites engaging in such relationships with foreign women. So in his parentage, you already see the nature of the depravity to which God's people have gone in. His father had other sons who drove out Jephthah on the grounds of his mother and then denied him his inheritance. That's a violation of God's command that inheritance flows from the father and not the mother. So if you read the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that the, the, the way inheritance was structured according to the law, law was through the line of the father, not of the mother. And yet, his family, and there seems to have been no opposition to this, drove him out because his mother was a prostitute. And of course, the general criminal nature of Jephthah himself. But, there are no other candidates for leadership. So the elders of Gilead seem to have no choice, but to appeal to the mercy of their discarded son. And that's what we read in verses 6 to 11. Verse 6 to 11, in chapter 11, it um, says that, said to Jephthah, come and be our leader so that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight, against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. What we notice here, is that there is no effort on the people of Israel's behalf to secure what is God's will in this matter. Instead, they have focused all of their efforts on finding a leader to satisfy their immediate need, which is military victory over the Ammonites. And Jephthah realizes that. You see, he's an outcast. Right? He's been thrown away from his homeland, from his family. And, and he knows that what they're trying to do is try to get him for his military skills so that they can have a leader in battle. And that's why he sarcastically rejects, rejects them, saying that, hey, you kicked me out, And now you want me back just to fight to potentially sacrifice my life for you, even though you have had nothing to do with me over the past 40 or 50 years, whatever, uh, of his life. So we already see that this is a man who thinks on his feet. And the elders, seeing that their initial offer was rejected, now they say that we'll give you leadership (laughs) Over the whole land of Gilead in exchange for you leading us into battle at Mizpah. And the appeal, we gotta be very careful here, is to the to the need and insecurity of Jephthah rather than to any God-given mandate for leadership. See, they recognize that Jephthah is not going to be satisfied with just being a military leader, so they said we'll make you a leader over the whole land. And thereby they appeal to his emotional need which is that he's an outcast he has no part of Gilead now he's being asked to come back with the offer that he'll be made leader over the whole place and Jephthah sees that as a means to to kind of secure his future and his status in Gilead and thereby he accepts and he's confirmed as leader of the tribe of Gilead at Mizpah and notice that the author here says that the words were spoken before the Lord at Mizpah but there is no temple or there is no shrine of the Lord for such a vow to, to have any kind of um, the spiritual validity that we see in the Old Testament. Instead, what is at Mispah? It's the army who is camped at Mispah. So the vow was for the army to see. The people who had camped at Mizpah saw that Jephthah was being a leader. So this was really something that was done for the purpose almost like an exhibition to to spur on the army that they have found a leader. So what we see here then in this background is an outcast who is representative of the spiritual decay of the people of God being made their leader to satisfy the pragmatic needs of both the man and the people. His need for security and status and a future in his homeland and their need for a deliverer or for immediate deliverance. Now, after Jephthah is being made leader in the long passage from verses 12 to 28, we see the talent of Jephthah, right? He shifts his focus to engaging the Ammonites in battle. But before fighting, he wants to give the the Ammonites a chance at a peaceful uh, negotiation. And one of the things you notice uh, as we read uh, this passage, we notice the predominance of words and dialogue. Right? More words, less action, so to speak. And the reason there is that Jephthah is a man who's very skilled in his words. He's a tactical negotiator. You see, he's already negotiated the terms of his leadership with the, with the elders of Gilead. And now he's going to rely on the strength of his words to persuade the Ammonite king to call off the conflict. And the conflict to very quickly go over it, is that the Ammonites claim that their land was taken away by Israel when Israel came out of Egypt. Therefore, they're trying to win it back. And this is a false claim. And Jephthah knows that that's a false claim. So he, he marshals the full use of his talent to refute their claim and show why Israel and thereby Gilead actually has the right to the land. And he makes use of three points, right? There's a historical argument in verses 15 to 22 that the land was actually never the Ammonites but it belonged to this tribe called the Amorites under King uh, Shihon. And when Shihon attacked the nation of Israel, Israel defeated Shihon, thereby winning the land of the Amorites. So the historical argument is that this was never your land. Then he makes a theological argument. And this is interesting. He says, our God Yahweh gave us this land by making us win in battle. Would you not take possession of the land if your God Chemosh gave you a same, the same victory. So he's saying that the argument is that our God gave us this land, that's why we have possession of it. Would you not say the same thing if your God gave you the land? Now, this is a worldview which is very common in the ancient time that oh, you know, each country or each nation has a land that's allotted to them by their God. Now, we do not know whether Jephthah actually believed that Because for an Israelite to actually accept the fact that there's a valid claim to deity by any other god is a sin. So we do not know if Jephthah actually believed that and was just using the logic of the Ammonites against them or whether he actually believed it, that Yahweh was a god and then there were other gods. And the writer does not make it clear. Then the last argument in verse 25 to 26 is a legal argument. The legal argument is that the king of Moab who had greater claim to this land than the, than the Ammonites never actually came to Israel and said that is my land I want it back. And another argument he makes is Israel has been here for 300 years so why did you wait all this time to establish your claim? So in these three arguments the historical argument that the land does not belong to Ammon The theological argument that the land was given to them by Yahweh and the legal argument that they waited for 300 years before coming up with this new claim, it shows that the Ammonite claim is false and it establishes that Israel and thereby Jephthah is in the right. As he says in Judges chapter 11 and verse 27, he says, I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decides this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So the king of Ammon did not listen to him, so the stage was set for the battle. And in this part of the story, the clear aim is to establish Jephthah's talent for words. And that's ironic, because that's probably a skill he picked up to survive as an outcast. But those same words, those same, that same talent will lead to his downfall, as we will read later. But also, if there's any hint of faith in Jephthah, this is the one time he expresses it in his stated claim that Yahweh is the one true judge and he's the one who's able and necessary to decide who and what is right. So we come to the last part of the chapter, verse 29 to 40, which is the tragedy, right? The tragedy of Jephthah. We we begin with saying with the passage saying the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead And from Mishpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. So clearly at this time we see the first and only intervention of God in the story of Jephthah. See God was silent when the Gileadites went and searched for a leader. He was silent when he negotiated with the Ammonite king. To be more accurate he was not even sought. But at the right time God makes an entry his spirit descending upon and empowering Jephthah in the battle against the Ammonites. And and as we read in verse 32, he gives the Ammonites into the hand of Jephthah. What does this tell us about God? Here is God who has been silent and who has not been referred to or who has not even been acknowledged or consulted. His presence is almost as if it's irrelevant. Even without the acknowledgement of his people, he descends by the sheer will of his grace alone to rescue them in their time of need. You know, we talk about stereotypes. Here's a true stereotype of God, especially in the book of Judges, that he's gracious and faithful to his people even when they are faithless toward him. That he's not a God who who forgets the promises and the covenant that he has made even though the people to whom those promises and covenants were made have forgotten them. And there's no merit in the life of Gilead or in the actions of Jephthah who have pragmatically sought their security apart from God that warrants, that, that gives, a, gives a reason for God to intervene. But by his sovereign ge- grace, God intervenes and gives them the victory. See, the grace of God cannot be predicted, it cannot be presumed, because then it would not be grace. If I can predict when and how the grace of God works, then it would not be grace. So grace of God cannot be predicted, it cannot be presumed upon, but it is always dependable. That at the right time, his hand works good for his people, even in the circumstances where we should not expect it. No one deserves grace, right? We will look at these people and say, oh, there's there's no reason in the world why God should act to deliver them. But that's true of us too. The truth is that no one deserves grace. But the great thing is that grace does not work the way we expect it to work. And we can be thankful for that. So the grace of God empowers Jephthah through his spirit. And he goes through the the lands of Gilead. The people of Gilead, the army sees that. They follow him and he gets this great victory through the power of God. Now, if this passage only contained verses 29, 32, and 33, we'd be not be calling this the tragedy of Jephthah. We'd be calling this the victory of Jephthah. But it's in between, what is in between verses 29 and 32 and what follows verse 34 that what should have been the victory of Jephthah turns into the tragedy of Jephthah. And we know the overall uh, story of the, of the vow of Jephthah. But we'll focus on the key elements here. Right? So what is the vow of Jephthah? He says that if you give the Ammonites into my hand whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So the first question is why did Jephthah make the vow? Right? There is no leading from the Lord to do so. There is no concept that you can manipulate God into giving you victory in battle. But if you understand that Jephthah lived in a pagan world, in a Canaanite world, the Canaanites did this. They engaged in a quid pro quo with their gods, that if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. And Jephthah seems to be taking his direction from the culture that he has grown up in rather than what God wanted, what brought honor to God. He's in effect manipulating God that if God gives him victory and thereby in his victory, you have to understand what is contained in the victory that he seeks. is not just victory over Ammon, but it's also his future as a leader of Gilead. It's also his return to his homeland, his, the status of his family. All of that is contained with his victory. He's manipulating God that if you give me this victory, I'll render to you a sacrifice. See, there are many vows in the Bible many of them are in faith many of them are done out of the pure disposition of the heart but what's interesting is that in general the bible has a very negative view of vows because in our fallen state it's easy to believe that a god of grace can be swayed one way or other by the nature of the vows we make so you read in deuteronomy 23 and 22 if you refrain from woeing or owing you will not be guilty of sin It's a very simple admonishment. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, Jesus says, you know, you have heard, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is saying is that it's easy to believe that what we claim to set apart, to dedicate to God in exchange for God being favorable to us can become a means of manipulating God. So that was Jephthah's vow. Well. He, he borrowed that concept from the people around him. What is the nature of this vow? Of this and this is part of the controversy, right? Over what actually happened to Jephthah's daughter. And I'm sure you would have uh, heard many interpretations of this but this is what I believe is the most warranted, the most defensible from the reading of the text and from what most of the church has believed uh, in history. Right. So if you read that word whatever, that word is also whoever. There's no definite conclusion whether it's whatever or whoever. It is slightly what we say anachronistic right, in the sense that we imp we import our ideas into the past. To think that some animal would run out and greet Jephthah. Right? So many people have this idea that, oh, when I return back home, I have a pet that runs out of the door to greet me. Like that, that is not the case in ancient Israel. So Jephthah intended that someone was going to come out to meet him. He probably thought it would be a servant or someone else like that. And he wanted a human sacrifice. And this is not surprising because when we read the Bible, when we read you know, what we have of ancient documents, everyone apart from Israel did human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice in, in Canaanite culture. And gods like Chemosh, we read for his kings. The, um, the king of Moab sacrificed his sons on the, on the wall to secure victory in battle. So it's not surprising that Jephthah thought, this is the way that I would gain favor with God, that I would make a burnt sacrifice of a human being. But it also highlights the fact that in his heart, ultimately Jephthah did not trust God to bring him victory. So therefore he sought to secure it conditionally. See, the failure of a pragmatic faith is that in seeking certainty, over trusting God, it trusts no one, and it mistrusts everyone. so if you ask ourselves, why are we so paranoid in this world today we are, we are so afraid of everyone everyone's motives right people are out to get us people are out to are out to out to uh, to cheat us to take advantage of us. The reason is because in our in our efforts to certain To to, uh, secure certainty over the fact that we are to live life trusting God, we don't actually trust anyone. We distrust everyone. And that's the inclination of the heart of Jephthah. That's how he has grown up. And he doesn't trust God. So we come to the crux of this tragedy in verses 34 to 40. It says that when he comes to his home, his only daughter comes out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, we we have to note what is Jephthah's reaction. He tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. See, his distress is predicated on what's going to happen to him. You have brought me low. You have become the cause of great trouble. There's no concern here that you would expect from a father to his only child over the disaster that awaits this person. All search for security is selfish. No matter how much we claim we do it for a greater common good. Whether we say we are doing it for someone else or for family, the search for security is ultimately predicated in our need for ourselves to be secure. And, 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 and the immediate response of Jephthah's heart is that all the plans that I have laid for my future... Has been destroyed by you, even though this poor child played no part in it, because he was she was the only child. Without her, there would be no more family of Jephthah. So, what happens to the daughter? It says in Numbers uh, chapter thirty and verse two: If a man vows to the a oath to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself, he shall not break his word. So, both Jephthah and his daughter are aware. That to break a vow before the Lord is a serious matter. However, they seem to be unaware that there are many restitutions that can be done if you needed or if you somehow had to break a vow. Let's look at the options that Jephthah had. He could have paid 20 shekels as compensation at the temple, according to Leviticus chapter 27. He could have brought upon the curse of the Lord upon himself and saved his daughter. If you break her off, you're saying, bring the curse upon me. He could have done that. He could have devoted her to the service of the Lord of the temple. Now that's why a lot of people say that's what actually happened. Because that was an option. And yet, it seems that Jephthah is unaware of his options, which is not surprising, given the background which he came from. How do you expect a people who lived with a foot in both both, so to speak, in the world and, 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 and in faith to fully understand all the complexities and all, the, all, the, all the, um, you know, the intricacies of the law of God. It seems that they knew that to break a wall was a very serious matter. They, they did not know that there were restitutions that could be made. And here we see that the daughter is shown to be more noble and innocent than her father. So she's ignorant of these options as well, but her innocence and her acceptance of her fate is a stark contrast to Jephthah, who's a scheming negotiator, whose words have led to his downfall. And her request is that she goes into the mountains to mourn, to mourn with her friends. The fact that she will not have a child and further her father's legacy. And in her mourning, she seeks not the comfort of the man who gave birth to her, but of her friends. The man who should have gained everything will not even have the compensation of his daughter's company in the last months of her life. And her request for a postponement of sentence, and this is the crux of the matter, makes no sense if all she had to do was go to the temple. This is an extension of life that is being requested. And that is the interpretation of the church all along until the very modern age. And the reason why we do not take the text literally is because we are repulsed at the evil that is perpetrated on this innocent life. And so is the author who only makes mention that she returned after two months and her father did with her as he would. That's all he says. He cannot bring himself to go into any further detail than that. And ironically, the last verse makes mention that the daughter of Jephthah was, was lamented year after year, but Jephthah himself was not to be remembered in the same way. See, the man who sought his security and future and relied on his skill with words found that he was trapped by those same words, and his life and his legacy ended with him. We often ask, why didn't God step in to avoid this tragedy the fact is God had stepped in he had made provisions to prevent something like this from happening and yet his people were ignorant of the very means that he had provided so it's one thing to say that God has made no provision it's another thing to say that there are provisions and yet somehow that were not availed of secondly the tragedy of Jephthah's story is not to be isolated to its conclusion but to the overall trajectory of his life. Too often we say, this is the problem with Jephthah was what happened to him at the end. No, what well, the writer of Judges wants to know, the problem with Jephthah is what he was all along. He was impacted more by his culture than he was by his God. Right? His viewpoints in his life, his struggle to gain legitimacy, his search for security, his sacrifice of his daughter, were all informed by the world around him rather than the God of Israel. And we often call the, the vow of Jephthah as rash, but was it really? He made a vow that is in character with his times. His words trapped him when the recipient of that vow became his daughter. But it's not rash the way you or I would think it. We could call it impulsive. Isn't it our culture would say that be yourself? Right? Let what is in your heart come out. The question we need to ask is what is in our heart? What comes out? What is the background? What Are we inclined toward the gospel or toward the teachings of this world? If our impulsiveness is founded in the world, as Jephthah's was, that leads to great danger. And we are understandably horrified by the evil that's laid out in this chapter. But then we need to ask ourselves, what makes us repulsed by this evil? One is the fact of her age. We don't know what, how old she is. But clearly, she was not a baby or, or a young child. She was someone who was well aware of what the tragedy meant and what it took away from her. So it's not the, is it the age that repulses us? Do we similarly get repulsed by the countless sons and daughters who are sacrificed today at the altar of convenience and insecurity? Or is it consent? Consent? See, Jephthah's daughter gave her consent to being sacrificed. If you make consent the, the arbiter of whether an act is evil or not, as we seem to be doing today, that if someone says, I want to die, that's okay, then we have no need. No one has any should have any problem with this text. Because she clearly consented. What makes age or consent the determinant of one act being barbaric and another being a human right? That is culture around us and we need to ask whether we are more influenced by our culture than we let on so Jephthah was impacted more by culture around him and that culture also impacted how he viewed God he thought God could be manipulated and controlled like the Canaanites manipulated and controlled their God see more disastrously his ignorance and mistrust of God led to a tragedy that could have been averted had he realized that God was gracious you see, in Judges chapter 10, the writer says that God was impatient towards the misery of his people. He had already decided that he was going to rescue them. And yet Jephthah did not trust that, so he took matters into our own hands. Like we read Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. You know, Micah says, What shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burned offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil. And then the prophet says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here's the answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God? How do we say that God made no provision when he has revealed his character, when he has revealed his word, he has revealed his law, and his people are ignorant of all the things that make this God so great. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we view God? Do we really trust him? Or do we view him like a taskmaster who needs to be, uh, you know, placated and satisfied by our works of righteousness? Like, how often do we do things thinking that, oh, I really need to do this because otherwise God will not bless me? How often do we do things out of the fear that God will punish us, rather than out of the joy that is to be found in doing something for him. How often do we do things out of a compulsion that comes from this false understanding that God does not have our best interest at heart, and instead seek to secure it for ourselves? We need to ask, who or what is our faith centered in? Is it pragmatism like israel and jephthah a mix of beliefs and practices that is a foot in both the world and in the word is our security found in what we have or is it found in what god has given us his son our lord and savior jesus christ does our pleasure lie in the things that are temporal or in the son who has promised us everlasting joy The answer to that is important because the one lesson of judges is that if you're pragmatic in your religion, in your faith, you're on the road to failure. There are real consequences to the behavior of God's people who minimize God to a contractual transactional relationship and downplace his importance, his lordship, his mastery in pursuit of the security of the world, its wealth and pleasures. Another lesson of judges is that really there are no true heroes, right? There are no heroes. If you think this is evil, this book ends with a man cutting his wife into pieces and sending one piece to each to the tribes of Israel. There are no heroes in this world, save for one. There is a hero. He's the true judge and deliverer. He was an outcast like Jephthah, but he was without sin. He was innocent like Jephthah's daughter, but not out of compulsion or ignorance. But by choice, he knew everything. He knew all things. But by choice, gave up his life to win victory for his people over the spiritual force of evil.